VCY America presents Crosstalk, a nationwide call-in program discussing issues that have an effect on our families, our communities, our churches, our nation, and our world. Crosstalk, an opportunity for you to voice your concerns for biblical principles. And now live by satellite and around the world on the Internet at vcyamerica.org. Here is today's Crosstalk. We are glad to have you joining us today on Crosstalk. For Jim Schneider, I am Dalton Windsor. On March the 5th of 2022, just days ago, VCY America hosted a rally in southeast Wisconsin. Now, if you have ever attended one of our rallies or tuned in via the network broadcast, you know that we begin each evening with a greeting, we pray together, we sing a little, and then we present the featured speaker. This time we were joined by William J. Federer. Yes, Bill Federer, a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of AmeriSearch Incorporated, a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. And I'll just let you know here at the very beginning, we will not be able to bring you Bill's entire presentation today. But do stay tuned as we will tell you about the DVD that is available, which holds the entire presentation, even includes Bill's PowerPoint presentation that is a must-see. Bill shared with us the dangerous slide towards socialism. You know, many in America today believe that our slide here has already begun. But according to Bill, it's not quite too late to do something about it. So let's get started as Jim Schneider introduced Bill. Let's give Bill Federer a warm welcome here to Southeast Wisconsin, Bill. Thank you, Jim. Well, thank you for coming out tonight. And I have a PowerPoint that I'm going to go through. You know, history is not prophetic, but it is predictive. Past behavior is the best indicator of future performance. One of my favorite quotes is from Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., and he said that history is to the nation what memory is to the individual. So have you ever met an individual who has lost their memory? Maybe they have Alzheimer's. My mother-in-law had Alzheimer's. It was sad. We sort of have national Alzheimer's. Here we are, the freest country that planet Earth has ever seen, and we forgot how we got here. We forgot who we are. And so sometimes when I tell history stories, it's sort of like giving uh, somebody that has lost their memory their memory back, and the little flicker comes back in. It's like, that's who we are. That's what America's all about. Anyway, with that, um, I put together this book, Socialism, and it goes back to Plato. Now, why Plato? Plato's the first one that talked about everybody owning everything in common. Sounds nice until you realize that somebody has to be in the government to hand out all the common stuff. And they're always going to be tempted to slip a little extra to their family and friends on the side and hold back from people they just flat out don't like. And before you know it, it gets discretionary. And the saying is, he who holds the purse strings has the power. And so every attempt at everybody owning everything equally always ends up with a deep state bureaucracy run by the most corrupt guy on the top, a dictator. And uh, Now, Plato lived in Athens around 380 B.C., and he writes in passing of Atlantis, this highly structured civilization on an island that sinks in the sea. Now, whether it existed or not, he thought that it did. And he, there is an island, by the way, in the Mediterranean called Santorini, and it's what's left of a volcano. And I visited it in college And uh, when it blew, it certainly would have wiped out lots of civilizations in the uh, Mediterranean. But Plato considered Atlantis the ideal structured society, and he considered democracy an unstructured society. Demos means people, krasi means rule, so in a democracy, the people rule. And the chief characteristic of a democracy is tolerance. Everybody tolerates each other. It's wonderful. Uh, He says the state is like a bazaar at which you can buy anything, like a piece of embroidery, the greatest variety of human natures, such as democracy, a pleasing, lawless, various sort of government, a charming form of government full of variety and disorder. So they tolerate each other, and then they tolerate people that are a little bit off. 
Then they tolerate people that are a lot off till finally they're tolerating lawlessness. And uh, he says the manner of life is that of Democrats because he's describing a democracy. Every man does what is right in their own eyes. He says the father gets accustomed to descend to the level of his son and fear him and the son having no shame or fear of his parents. So now they're tolerating disrespect in the home. The teacher fears and flatters his students, and the students despise their masters and tutors. So now they're tolerating disrespect in the classroom. Then the citizens vote to spread the money around from the city treasury, and now the treasury's empty. So then they vote to take the money from the rich. The leaders deprive the rich of their estates and distribute them amongst the people. Now there's no rich left. And then it gets into their morality And he says, the young man passes into freedom and libertinism of useless and unnecessary pleasures. There is no conceivable folly or crime, not accepting incest or any other unnatural union. He has parted company with all shame. Yes, that's what he's talking about, right? So now they're tolerating sexual immorality. Now, a study was done by an Oxford anthropologist named J.D. Unwin, In 1934, he published a book called Sex and Culture. And he's not a Christian, to my knowledge. He's an anthropologist. And he studied 80 major civilizations over 5,000 years, and he saw trends. And one of the trends that he observed is that sexual promiscuity and loosening of sexual restraints always precedes the collapse of a civilization. He says civilizations go through four stages. The first is a period of pain and poverty, right? They go through war, they go through famine, they work hard, and then they become productive, and they become protective, and then they work together, and they become patriotic, and then finally they become prosperous, and then they want to enjoy their prosperity, and they want to have pleasure, and then they get promiscuous and indulgent, undisciplined, lawless, weak, and then they get conquered by the next rising civilization. It's sort of like an athlete. When he's young, he's focused and disciplined, does the push-ups, watches his diet. He wants that prize. And then finally, he gets it, and he is the champ for a couple seasons. And then he gets a little lazy. He wants to enjoy himself, and maybe he doesn't exercise as much, and he eats some fatty foods. And in his mind, he still thinks he's the tough guy. But he gets challenged into the ring of competition, and he gets the tar knocked out of him because, in reality, he's a couch potato. And so, um, J.D. Unwin uh, call, actually called it a sexual marketplace. He says, when women as a whole say nothing happens unless there's a commitment, the guys make the commitment, and then they go out and work hard to provide for their wife. And then something happens, little kids appear, and the guy has another emotion called being protective. And when all the guys in the country are being productive and protective, rising water floats all boats, the whole country gets productive and protective and expansionistic and creative and innovative and even militaristic. But when the women as a whole say there does not need to be a commitment, water seeks its own level, and you'll have a bunch of guys saying, hey, it's pleasure time, and they get selfish, and they get focused on their own pleasure, and When enough of the guys in the country do this, uh, there's fewer kids born to fill the ranks of the military, and the country gets weakened, and they get conquered by the next rising civilization. And uh, J.D. Unwin said it's irreversible. Once a nation starts going down this path, it's like a snowball going down a hill. Human nature is on its side. It wants the pleasure. Uh, We're faced with the challenge of trying to stop it or at least slow it down. Now, uh, this trend, he observed, again, in 80 major, major civilizations. John Adams writes to Thomas Jefferson, have you ever found in history one single example of a nation thoroughly corrupted that was afterwards restored to virtue? And without virtue, there can be no political liberty. Will you tell me how to prevent luxury from producing effeminacy, intoxication, extravagance, vice folly? No effort in favor of virtue was lost. Harry S. Truman said, without a firm moral foundation, freedom degenerates quickly into selfishness and anarchy. So Plato, he says, in Athens, they tolerate each other. It's wonderful. Then they tolerate people that are a little bit off. Then they tolerate people that are a lot off, till finally they're tolerating lawlessness. 
and it turns into chaos, random violence and looting and people being mugged. And they begin to say, we need someone to come along and fix this unstructured mess. And that's when some governor comes along and he says, I can fix it. I just need some emergency powers. And Plato says, last of all comes the tyrant. When he first appears above ground, he's a protector. He's full of smiles. Oh, I met him. He gives great speeches. And and then he begins to consolidate power. And Plato says that how does a protector change into a tyrant? He begins to grow unpopular. You see, tyrants have two tools in their toolbox. There's one is fraud and the other is force. Fraud is they'll lie to you and take away your freedoms, telling you that they're doing it for your own good. But when people begin to see through it and they become unpopular, they just throw off the mask and they just use force. And they usually purge their military of anybody that has morals and convictions. All they want is yes men. And if any are suspected of resistance to his authority, he'll have a good pretext for destroying them. And then Plato says, finally, standing up in the chariot of state with the reins in his hand, a tyrant absolute. And having a mob entirely at his disposal, he's not restrained from shedding of blood. So you have democracy where the people rule, works as long as the people have morals and virtue. When they give up their morals and virtue, it turns into chaos and lawlessness. And then they want some governor to come along and fix it. And the rubber band snaps back into the hands of a king. Plato says that a democracy is doomed to fail because it's based on the people having virtue. And if you give people a choice of giving up their life or giving up their virtue, they'll always give up their virtue to save their life. Now, ancient Israel had uh, their experiment of ruling themselves without a king lasted a little longer because they had a big magnet in the sky called God. And people were virtuous because they were accountable to God. Athens did not have that. By Plato's time, Athens had a bunch of fickle deities that nobody believed in anyway. And so Plato says it's just a matter of time till this thing crashes. And matter of fact, Plato said that if someone was born that truly had virtue, the world would crucify him. This is what he writes in 380 B.C. If a truly just man lived, let him die as he lived. I might add that the just man will be scourged, racked, bound, and will at last be crucified. Imagine that. So Plato concluded that the best you can hope for is a nice tyrant. Since the democracy is doomed to fail, just hope that you get a nice tyrant. He called him a philosopher king. And he's the head of gold, and his administrators and military are the arms and chest of silver. They get to live a little better off than everybody else because they're the ones that keeps everything from devolving into chaos. And so they're the ruling class. And everybody else is the abdomen of iron and bronze. They are the ruled class. So socialism, going back to Plato, is a two-tiered society of a ruling class and a ruled class. Now, the ruling class, they're above the law. They're politically connected. They're supported by the commoners. They decide who gets what. They can do special things, like getting their hair styled when nobody else can. (laughs) Well, imagine that. You're listening to William J. Federer and his presentation, The Dangerous Slide Toward Socialism, This was the presentation at a VCY rally in southeast Wisconsin. Might be a good idea to take some notes as you continue to listen. Stay with us. There is plenty more ahead here on Crosstalk. Back to Genesis with Dr. John Morris, scientist with the Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Morris, what can you tell me about those huge flying reptiles? Chris, some of the flying reptiles were as large as a mid-sized aircraft. Some people have wondered how in the world they could have ever flown. As it turns out, they really couldn't fly in today's atmosphere. There's not enough air pressure to keep them up. Creationists have long supposed that the environment before the flood was quite different than now. We suspect that air pressure was quite a bit higher than now, making it more reasonable that these huge creatures could fly. Recently, an engineer built a model of one of these flying reptiles and tried to make it fly. He found that it had many wonderful adaptations to increase the flying ability, but there still wasn't enough air pressure to keep it aloft. To evolutionists, it's a big mystery, but to creationists, we at least have a plausible theory. And we get that by going back to Genesis. For more on creation, visit our website at www.icr.org. 
We are back on Crosstalk, listening to Bill Federer at the VCY rally with the presentation, The Dangerous Slide Towards Socialism. Bill was just sharing the historic four stages of a civilization and now continues with helping us understand in socialism, you have two classes, the ruling and the ruled. Pay extra attention to Bill's question and answer to, didn't Jesus teach socialism? Now, the ruled class, yes, everyone is provided for, but nobody owns any property. Everything's held in common, and it's the ruling class that decides who gets what. The saying is, he who holds the purse strings has the power. There are no families in Plato's perfect society. The government decides who gets to have children, and the government takes the children away from the parents, brings them into the city to the schools where they're socialized, which is a process of getting them to give up their parents' values and learn how to serve the ruling class. Plato explained that when the true philosopher kings are born in a state, they will set in order their own city. They will take possession of the children who will be unaffected by the habits of their parents. These they will train in their own habits and laws. And these children will be taught lies, noble lies. Plato said, we want one single grand lie, which will be believed by everybody. Could you imagine the government taking the kids away from the parents and teaching them lies? Hmm. Anyway, Plato said that it's okay to teach the kids lies because the lies help the tyrant to stay in power, and since it's better than a democracy, it's okay. Now, Plato's perfectly structured society on the island of Atlantis inspired Sir Thomas More's Island of Utopia in 1516. And the word utopia means nowhere. It's a fictitious island in uh, the South Atlantic, somewhere off the coast of uh, Colombia, supposedly discovered by Amerigo Vespucci. And utopia means nowhere, and it's written as a dialogue, the way the Greeks did a conversation with a traveler named Hythlodeus, which means peddler of nonsense. So we have the island of nowhere, told to us by the peddler of nonsense. And on um, the Thomas More's island of Utopia, it's perfectly structured. There's an upper-class rulers, lower-class commoners, free health care, free identical clothing. Everyone receives free welfare. There's free meals in monastic communal dining halls. Everyone lives in free, identical, three-story public houses. There's no locks on any doors. There's no private property. All property and goods are stored in a communal warehouse. There's no taverns, no alehouses, no coffee houses, no places for private gatherings. There's no privacy. Everyone is tracked everywhere you go with an internal passport. Without it, it's a lifetime of slavery. This is 1516. He's talking about everybody being tracked. The government decides everyone's careers. You have to work for the rest of your life. And there's no families on Sir Thomas More's utopia. The government controls childbearing, like China's one-child policy or Margaret Sanger's Planned Parenthood. No woman shall have a legal right to bear a child without a permit. Now, Sir Thomas More wrote it as a veiled criticism of Henry VIII, and Henry VIII had Sir Thomas More killed. So... Plato's Atlantis, Island of Utopia, Sir Thomas More, inspired Sir Francis Bacon, who wrote New Atlantis. He calls it New Atlantis because he's directly referring to Plato's Atlantis. And this is a fictitious island in the South Pacific. Highly structured, ruling class commoners, a little more scientific careers because the scientific revolution is going on at the time. But the government dictates everything. Now, somebody wrote a satire on this, and you've read it. Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Gulliver means gullible traveler. And here he's washed up on an island and finds out it's highly structured with a ruling class that's controlling everything about everybody's lives and then the ruled class that just has to work their jobs. Now, why is this important? The pilgrims. They didn't have any money. And it was around this time that they go to investors in England who start the London Company. And the investors look back to Plato's or Thomas More and others, and they say, hey, let's set up a perfect society where everybody owns everything in common. And so the Pilgrim bylaws say this. 
All profits, benefits that are got by trade, traffic, trucking, working, fishing, or any other means shall remain in ye common stock, and all are to have their meat, drink, and apparel, and all provision out of ye common stock. And it sounds nice, and they tried it, and they almost starved to death. Governor Bradford says the failure of that experiment of communal service, which was tried for several years by good and honest men, proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients applauded by some of latter times. I just think it's amazing. Here are the pilgrims directly referring to Plato. They knew that they were trying to live out this theoretical thing, that the taking away of private property and possession of it in community would make a state happy and flourishing, as if they were wiser than God. For in this instance, community of property was found to breed much confusion and discontent, retard much employment, which would have been to the general benefit. For the young men who were most able and fit for service objected to being forced to spend their time and strength in working for other men's wives and children without any recompense. The strong man or the resourceful man had no more share of food, clothes, etc. than the weak man who was not able to do a quarter what the other could. This was thought injustice. The aged and graver men who were ranked and equalized in labor, food, clothes, etc. with the humbler and younger ones thought it some indignity and disrespect. As for men's wives who were obliged to do service for other men, such as cooking, washing their clothes, etc., they considered it a kind of slavery, and many husbands would not brook it or allow it. Bradford goes on, Let none argue that this is due to human failing rather than to this communistic plan of life in itself. I answer that God in his wisdom saw that another plan of life was fitter for them. So they began to consider how to raise more corn, obtain a better crop, so they might not continue to endure the misery of want. After much debate, the governor with the chief among them allowed each man to plant corn for his own household. Wow, what a novel idea. (laughs) So every family was assigned a parcel of land. This was very successful. It made all hands very industrious so that much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means and gave far better satisfaction. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to plant corn, while before they would allege weakness and inability and to have compelled them would have been thought great oppression. So here they tried this everybody owning everything in common and Nobody wanted to go out and plant, and they almost starved. And they said, scrap that, give everybody their own land. And everybody worked really hard. And then they had an abundance, and then they had the Thanksgiving that we celebrate all the time. Now, wasn't the early church socialist? No, actually, the early church was the early church. Socialism is counterfeit early church. And the difference is between the word voluntary and involuntary and church and government. So the early believers voluntarily sold their land and laid the money at the feet of the apostles for the church to distribute. They didn't have their land taken away and be forced to involuntarily lay the money at the feet of Pilate and the Roman government to redistribute. When the children of Israel went into the promised land, every family was given property. If you own property, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. And you can be moved upon to voluntarily give away some of your stuff. The Bible called that charity, right? So you get blessed, you have stuff, you can voluntarily give it away. Lenin said socialism is a transition phase from capitalism to communism. Capitalism empowering the individual and communism empowering the state. And communism, Karl Marx says, communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. So, if you do not own any property, how can you be charitable? How can you give away something you don't have? What, are you going to steal from somebody else and now you're a thief, you've broken the law? No, God entrusts you with stuff and you have the voluntary opportunity to manifest on the outside what is on the inside of your heart, the love of God. Didn't Jesus teach socialism? Well, let's look at the parable of the talents. Uh, gives one guy five, multiplies it to ten. Another guy two, multiplies it to four. And one guy had one, and he buried it. And he says, sir, here's your talent. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. His master replied, you wicked servant. He said to those standing by, take his talent away from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, 
that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. If Jesus were a socialist, he would have taken from the guy that has ten and divided up equally among all three. No, it's the hand of the diligent that bears rule. God doesn't bless laziness, right? You go out there, the Holy Spirit is called the helper. you got to go out there and do something, and the Holy Spirit will help you do it. You don't sit back with your feet up on the sofa and say, go do that. No, God helps you to do stuff. And, um, and if you do something, he'll bless it. Now, there's a confusion as to the role of government. And in the Bible, God clearly gives demands to five groups. Individuals, family, business, church, government. The commands to the individual do include taking care of the poor. The family commands are mostly relational. Husbands love your wives, children submit to your parents. Business commands are mostly do an honest day's work and don't hold back wages. The church is commanded to take care of the poor. And they immediately did, feeding orphans and widows and through the centuries started hospitals and medical clinics and orphanages and schools. Do you know there's no command for the government to take care of the poor? The command to the government's the shortest. Protect the innocent, punish the guilty. Right? You know, defend the borders. There's no command for the government to be involved in health care. There's no command for the government to be involved in education. What's happened is the government has usurped the church's role. And we've let it because we haven't educated ourselves on these roles. James Madison said, Charity is no part of the legislative duty of the government. Uh, Dan, Davy Crockett was a congressman. There was a fire in Georgetown, and Congress was going to vote to give some federal tax money to help him. And Davy Crockett said, no, Congress has not the power to appropriate this money as an act of charity. Every member on this floor knows it. We have the right as individuals to give away as much of our own money as we please in charity. But as members of Congress, we have no right to appropriate a dollar of public money as charity. I love the quote from Calvin Coolidge. He said, it does not follow that because something ought to be done, the national government ought to do it. We need to take care of the poor. Yes, we do, but it's not the government's job. We need to take care of the immigrants. Yes, we do, but it's not the government's job. We need to take care of schools. We need to take care of lots of things, but it's not the government's job. Wow. So sorry to interrupt. Uh, We are up against a break. We will pick back up right where we left off. Would you like to see this rally in its entirety? Yes, you are hearing it now, but... The DVD offer includes Bill's entire presentation and his PowerPoints, which are a must-see to go along with the message. We all need to know these things. Your kids, your grandkids need to know these things, as they are more than likely not getting this at school. Now, because time is so limited here on radio, the DVD, again, is a must-see, a must-have resource. You can call our switchboard anytime during business hours and request the DVD, The Dangerous Slide Toward Socialism, with William J. Federer. Call 1-800-729-9829. That's 1-800-729-9829. Audio CDs for the car or home are also available. We'll be right back. Dave Cristiano has produced and directed impactful Christian films addressing timely issues. This month, offered is a set of his productions including the 90-minute Power of the Air, in which a missionary from Africa warns of the danger the church in America is facing due to the influence of the media the church is consuming. Also in this package are three 25-minute productions from 7th Street Theater, including On the Air addressing the issue of depression, the bus stop, addressing the matter of prayer, and May Day, an evangelistic film comparing the days of Noah to the return of Christ. This set of DVDs is available for a donation of $20 with additional sets to the same address for an additional $12 donation per set. Call 1-800-729-9829. 1-800-729-9829. You may also visit vcyamerica.org.
Crosstalk continues on the VCY America radio network. Bill Federer is presenting the dangerous slide towards socialism from the VCY rally in southeast Wisconsin. Allow us to rewind just a bit. This really does make sense and shows us where responsibility really lies. Bill had just quoted Calvin Coolidge. I love the quote from Calvin Coolidge. He said, it does not follow that because something ought to be done, the national government ought to do it. We need to take care of the poor. Yes, we do, but it's not the government's job. We need to take care of the immigrants. Yes, we do, but it's not the government's job. We need to take care of schools. We need to take care of lots of things, but it's not the government's job. Do you know that early 1800s, there was a second Great Awakening revival, and you had Christians doing things. You had Charles Finney preach, and his revival lectures were read by George Williams, who started the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. His lectures on revival were read by William and Catherine Booth, who started the Salvation Army. And you had people starting missionary organizations and abolitionist societies and uh, women's suffrage groups and temperance groups, all the individuals. Clara Barton was a school teacher. She started the Red Cross. You had individuals and churches starting things to take care of the needs, not the government. It was only after FDR and the pre- did, through the Depression did the federal government begin to usurp the church's role. And then it got a real big kick with Lyndon Johnson's Great Society Welfare State. Gerald Ford said, people say, why don't you expand that program and spend more federal money? I look them in the eye and say, do you realize that a government big enough to give us everything we want is a government big enough to take from us everything we have? Now, what if older fish could tell younger fish to stay away from shiny things dangling in the water? But they can't. So every new generation of younger fish sees this shiny thing, they're attracted to it and caught. It's a hook, right? Socialism is a shiny thing dangling in the water. Free food, free clothes, free education, free welfare, free, free, free. Free is attractive, but there is a hook. You give up your independence. You give up control of your life. Now, when the church helps anybody, it's called disinterested benevolence. You want them to get better for no other reason than you want them to get better, and hopefully they'll help the next needy person that comes along. Whenever the government helps anybody, it's always in exchange for something. Like you're in Egypt, you need food, the government gives you food, but it's in exchange for your land, your cattle, your lives, your votes. When the church helps, it's personal, and the giver experiences the joy of the Lord, and the recipient feels the love of God through a real person. When the government helps anybody, it's impersonal. You don't know whose pocket that money came out of that turned into the welfare check. And the recipient views it as a debt that is owed to them. And over time, the recipient loses self-esteem. And they want to channel that negative feeling somewhere. They end up blaming and hating the very government giving them free stuff. Interesting dynamic. So the pilgrims, they switch from company to covenant. What's that? From involuntary to voluntary. Instead of your stuff being involuntarily taken away because of the bylaws and redistributed, no, it's a covenant form of government where you get the stuff and then you're moved upon in your heart to voluntarily care for your neighbor. And so this covenant form of government goes back to ancient Israel, the triangle, right? You get rights and blessings from God and you voluntarily take, take care of your neighbor because you're accountable to God. Right? Whatever you do to the least these my brethren, you've done unto me. Margaret Thatcher says the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, are addressed to each and every person. This is the origin of the sanctity of the individual. Your founding fathers came over with that. They looked after one another, not only as a matter of necessity, but as a matter of duty to their God. So they're taking care of the poor, but it's voluntarily because they're doing it as unto God. They looked back during these colonial era to ancient Israel so much that they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. And they looked back particularly to that first 400-year period when Israel came out of Egypt before they got King Saul. So it's the book of Judges, a little confusing, but it's a unique period in world history. I spent several years researching every civilization that ever existed on planet Earth. And you have Nimrod, Tower of Babel, and the Assyrians, and Babylonians, and the Elamites, and the Egyptians, and, and it's all kings, and pharaohs, and Caesars, and Kaisers, and they keep getting bigger and bigger until finally the king of England was the biggest. And America's founders broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. But ancient Israel stands out as unique because the first 400 years out of Egypt, they had no king. 
around 1400 BC. They come out of Egypt and no king. And um, anyway, they, it worked because everybody was taught the law and they were accountable to God to follow the law. So if you think of government as a line with one side being total government and the other side being no government, total government, you get a king and he rules through fear. You do what he says or he kills you. The no government side would be anarchy unless the people have virtue. And uh, in Israel's case, it was everybody being taught the law. And I was trying to think of a way of explaining it. Imagine if everybody downloaded a behavioral app on their iPhone, right? Instead of a GPS app telling you where to turn, imagine a behavioral app, and it tells you how to act in real time, right? It, it sees you, it's monitoring your blood pulse, and it sees you're about to lose your temper at somebody that's in your vicinity, and it can hear the tone of your voice increasing in volume, and it says, alert, alert, don't lose your temper. And then it, it sees you in an expensive store with nobody in the vicinity, and sees you looking a little bit longer at a certain item, and it checks your bank accounts running low, and you're, you're being tempted. To, it runs the algorithm, right? And it says, alert, alert, don't steal. So you have a behavioral app. That's what the law is, and that Hebrew Levite priests were the computer geeks that help you to download the app, right? Line upon line, precept. But the big question is, why would you follow it? What would motivate you to follow an internal moral? Well, Israel had the key ingredient. There is a God who is watching everyone. He wants you to be fair. He's going to hold you accountable in the future. So you're about to steal. Nobody's around. You know you can get away with it. And then you think, God is watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. If everybody in the country really believes this, you can maintain complete order with no police. People will take care of their neighbor because they're doing it as unto God. Now, God knew the Israelites would break the law, and rather than them walk around the rest of their life with a guilty conscience, once a year they sacrificed the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and everyone's sins were forgiven, and they started the new year off with a clean slate. And obviously, that's foreshadowing Jesus. Ronald Reagan said, without God, there's no virtue, because there's no prompting of the conscience. If there's no God, then laws are just something made up by men, and why should you follow them? So if you get rid of God, got these laws, you'd get rid of those, and then there's get rid of virtue, and then it turns into lawlessness. Remember, Plato talked about that. People give up their virtue, it turns into lawlessness. And um, Israel, the high priest, Eli, his own sons are sleeping with women in the very tent where the Ark of the Covenant is. So he's not teaching the law to his sons. And then you got a Levite with a graven image in the house of a guy named Micah. And you're reading the story saying, what's he doing with a graven image? Isn't that one of the commandments? You're not supposed to have them. And then you read the terrible story of a Levite with a concubine. The law says the Levites to marry a virgin of his own tribe. Here he is with a woman he's not even married to. And the house is surrounded by sodomites, and they rape the poor girl to death. And by the time you're grossed out, you read this line, every man did that which was right in their own eyes. Same exact line that 600 years later, Plato wrote. And so what happened in ancient Israel? It turned into an unstructured mess. And they began to say, we need some governor to come along and fix it. Well, in their case, they asked for a king, and they got Saul. And Samuel cries, and the Lord tells him, they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. God's original plan for Israel was to not have a king, have everybody be taught the law, everybody to have private property and be blessed. And, um, and then an interesting story, King Saul is now the king, and he's ruling as a tyrant. And he's pouting that his son became friends with David. And he goes to his soldiers. None of you soldiers care about me. And one soldier, Doeg the Edomite, says, King, I care. I saw David go to this town. They gave him some bread and the sword of Goliath that was stored there. Saul says, bring those priests to me. When they show up, he turns to his men and says, kill them. And the soldiers hesitate. And Doeg the Edomite goes out there and kills them all. What just happened? The soldiers have been operating under the old system where everybody is accountable to God to follow the law. And the law says you need two or more witnesses before you condemn somebody to death. There's only one witness, Doeg. So they're hesitating. They're like, okay, you, this does not compute. You're telling me to kill, and you know, I'm accountable to God, and God says there need to be two witnesses. There's only one. And they're hesitating. They have a conscience. 
Doeg says, King, I'm going to surrender my conscience to you. You tell me to kill, I'll kill. You tell me to kill the baby in the womb, I'll kill it. You tell me there's no more male and female, fine. You talk about it. Tell me there's fluid sex and boys can go and girls. But whatever you tell, whatever the government tells, I'm just a bunch of mush. When you blow your trumpet, I'll body your statue. The government always wants to insert itself between you and God. And God is jealous. He doesn't want the government in between you and him. And there will come a point in everyone's lives where you're going to have to make the choice that the apostle Peter said to the Sanhedrin. We told you not to speak in his name anymore. And he says, should we obey God or man? Right? Well, I'm going to obey God. Anyway, so there's four slides here, and we're going to see how covenant turned into socialism. So the pilgrims got their idea from ancient Israel, this covenant where you get rights and blessings from God, and you voluntarily take care of your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God. The century after the pilgrims was the age of enlightenment and covenant turned into social contract. This came out of the scientific revolution where you had Isaac Newton discovering laws of gravity and Kepler discovering laws of planetary motion and Robert Boyle discovering laws of pressure. And so some theologians said maybe God made everything with laws and like a guy winds up a clock and it's got all these gears, um, maybe he's off taking a walk or something. And everything's just going on its own. The ultimate of this is God as an impersonal force in the universe. And so the idea is that if God is there, he's distant. And so it's more or less just the covenant turns into social contract. Well, we all agree upon. But still, God is distant. But in the next century, it turns into social contract with no God during the French Revolution. You get your rights from the group, you're accountable to the group. And the next century, it turns into Marxism and socialism, where the state is God. You get your rights from the state, you're accountable to the state, and if the state wants to, it can kill you. So we talked about this French Revolution period. Let me go through this, because this is one of the modern examples of socialism. So King Louis XVI helped us during our revolution. And you know what he got in return? Nothing but debt. And then their crops failed, and the people had, didn't have bread, and they go to the queen, Marie Antoinette, and they say, the people don't have bread, and she said, supposedly said, let them eat cake. It wasn't her fault, but she's, right? she's grew up in court. Anyway, so the people in France thought if they could just chop off the king and queen's heads, all their problems will be solved. Well, they chop it off. It doesn't get any better. So then they chop off the heads of all the royalty. It doesn't get better. They chop off the heads of all the wealthy. You have money, we don't. You're selfish. Then they chop off the heads of the businessmen and farmers. You got food and supplies, we don't. You're selfish. Then they chopped off the heads of the hoarders. You got extra food, we don't have enough. You're selfish. Then they chopped off the heads of the clergy because they're speaking out against the head chopping off stuff. And um, then they chopped off the heads of the former revolutionaries, the ones that used to chop off heads but got tired of it. Somehow they're to blame. 30,000 people had their heads chopped off in Paris, France. You know what the motto of the French Revolution was? Liberty, equality, fraternity. Fraternity is their word for socialism. It's the fraternity, the club, the collective, the group, the mob, the state. And um, equality can be understood two ways. In America, it was equal treatment before the law, but in France, it was everyone having an equal amount of stuff. And if the fraternity, the group, the socialist state, thinks you have too much stuff, It can use the power of the state to trample your individual liberty, take away all your stuff, redistribute it, and kill you. For the Worldview Report, I'm Brandon House. Our website is worldviewreport.com. Sadly, many Americans and even many in the military have been brainwashed to believe that America's military could stomp all over Russia anytime we wanted. That is absolutely not the truth. Dr. Peter Vincent Pry, whose radio show I produce, has documented on his radio show and in an article that Russia's ICBMs, which is intercontinental ballistic missiles, are at a 95% state of readiness all the time. 95% state of readiness all the time. They could launch many of their ICBMs within three and a half minutes. They're on a constant combat readiness level. Putin, right now as I'm recording this, is in a bunker, in a control center. They have way more ICBMs than we do, way more. They've cheated on so many of their treaties with us while we've honored our treaties, and now they're on the fifth and sixth generation warfare, and we're in bad shape. Our ICBMs largely are on subs that have to get out to sea and get close to strike, and our planes would take up to three days to get them ready to go. America is vulnerable. Wake up. 
final segment of Bill Federer from the VCY rally, the dangerous slide toward socialism. We just heard painful truths of socialism in world history. And we are seeing many of these same tactics being reused today. But what is the answer to all of this? Bill had many more examples of socialism to share, yet the turnaround, the only answer to changing the goals, the hearts of nations, cannot be found by looking around. We must instead look up. Um, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to have to uh, end with, with lots of stuff that I don't have time for. But, um, you know, we talked about crises. And in times of crises, power gets concentrated into the hands of, of bad people. But it's also in times of crisis that people turn to Christ. So how many of you turn to Christ when everything was perfect in your life? How many tend to turn to Christ when things aren't going so good? Right? And so if you turn to Christ in a crisis, what's a nation but a whole lot of people? What's the world but a whole lot of people? I'm convinced the same crisis that's going to cause some people to panic and fear and take the mark of the beast is going to cause other people to get all excited for Jesus and get bolder than they've ever been before, and we'll see a great revival. You know, the first prophecy, amen. The first prophecy was the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will bruise his heel. And the devil didn't know where this would happen, but it happened simultaneously on the cross. The devil got Jews and Gentiles to crucify Christ, dust his hands, he goes, that's it, I took care of him. But Jesus says, it's finished. And the devil says, what's finished? The devil just got his head crushed because the Jews and Gentiles sacrificed the Lamb of God so that all the people's sins in the world could be forgiven and we all have the opportunity to now be reunited with God. And the devil lost his job because the word Satan means accuser. He accuses us to God. God, you've got to judge them. They're sinners. And he says, I did judge them. I judged them in Christ. So the same crisis that the devil thought he won, he lost. And I'm convinced as we get closer to the end times, the same crises, the devil's thinking he's going to win and consolidate power, he's going to lose. And we're going to see a great revival of people who get more excited for Jesus than they've ever been before. You know, I'm, I just want to end with this one thought. So we see everything from our point of view, but let's for a moment think of things from God's point of view. Here's God. He exists for eternity. Eternity. Upon, there's never been a time when God has not existed. He makes everything. Space, matter, time. And, and everything obeys him. He's all-powerful, and he exists for all eternity. So at some time in, etern- in eternity past, God said, been there, done that. I can make galaxies. Uh, I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Now it gets interesting because love, by definition, must be voluntary. So in this framework of everything he controls, light, time, matter, space, energy, every, everything he controls, he created one little thing he doesn't control, your will. Now, he could control it if he wanted to, but that would defeat the very reason he made you different than everything else. He gave you free will. The more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love him back. But he won't force you to love him back because the moment he would force you to love him, he himself would know he's forcing you to love him and he would know your response is not a love response. And he hides himself behind his creation because if he ever revealed himself in all of his universe creating majesty, your response would be instinctive. And God's not interested in an instinctive response. He wants a voluntary response. So he hides himself behind creation. People say, well, if God's real, why doesn't he, why doesn't he show himself? Why doesn't he prove it? Because the moment he, show, he would show himself to you, It would not only prove that he's real, it would remove your free will. Because in the presence of such enormous power, your response would be immediately instinctive. He wants a love response, so he hides himself. It's sort of like a billionaire that has a son that goes to college. If he flies in in his private jet, drives up in his Lamborghini, gold rings, Rolex watch, fancy clothes, and entourage follows him around campus, he's going to have every girl wanting to meet him. But if he lays all that aside and he drives up in an old clunker, the uppity girls are going to ignore him. But then there's a girl that likes to study with him in the library, and they eat together in the cafeteria, and they become friends. And she takes heat from the clique for hanging around this nobody guy. But she believes in him. They fall in love. They get engaged. And then he says, I want to take you back to meet my dad. And they're like driving up to this mansion, and the girl's like, whoa, you didn't tell me about all this. 
He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff. God laid all that aside, and he was born in a manger. But the other side of God is he's just, which means he has to judge every sin. If God does not judge a sin, he's effectively giving consent to the sin. In common law, it's called the rule of tacit admission. And you've seen it in wedding ceremonies where the pastor says, anybody against this wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace. If you're at the wedding, silent, your silence is giving consent to the wedding. If there are sins going on and God is silent and not judging them, his silence is giving consent to the sin. And if God gives consent to sin, he's no longer a just God. So he's got to judge. So here he gives us free will and he wants us to love him, but it, and we have this free will, but, but what if we blow it in sin? The just side of God is he's got to slap us and destroy us. But he, he, he doesn't want that, so he has a plan of redemption. What's the plan? The plan is his own son would become the lamb and take the judgment we deserve upon himself on the cross. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, in the plan of redemption hidden from the ages, became the lamb and took the judgment for all the sins that we deserve upon himself. You know, I have a degree in accounting, so I like things that balance. And if you can imagine a scale, an eternal being, Jesus, who's innocent, suffering for a finite, limited period of time, is equal to all of us finite, limited beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who's innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Infinity times finite equals finite times infinity. Right? An unlimited being suffering for a limited period of time is equal to all of us limited beings suffering for an unlimited period of time. Jesus literally experienced the equivalent of eternal damnation in the place of you and I so that we could experience eternal life with our Father in heaven because of Jesus. That's why we sing praise songs to Jesus. And he's the only one that could have done it. For this entire presentation on DVD or audio CD, call during business hours 1-800-729-9829. Ask for Bill Federer and The Dangerous Slide Toward Socialism. As we close, we reiterate what Bill just shared. The answer to man's greatest need is found in Jesus Christ the Lord. You've been listening to Crosstalk via satellite and the Internet from BCY America. Views expressed may or may not be those of this station. For a CD of today's program, send a donation of $6 or more to VCY Tape Ministry, 3434 West Kilbourne Avenue, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53208, or download by RSS or podcast from crosstalkamerica.com. And join us again for Crosstalk.